Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. There is just no better way to start your week than another great conversation with your man right here, Mark Claire. Just coming off a fantastic time in Las Vegas for my wedding. My wedding that, uh, you know, the most common question I get, of course, I thought you were already married, Mark. Well, I was already married, and I'll explain the whole thing, actually, in the latest Mark's Monthly Musings, which will be dropping today for patrons of the Mark Claire Show. Patron supporters, wherever you uh, wherever you subscribe, you'll get that, whether it's on Patreon, at Subscribestar, on Rockfin, where you can get access to a bunch of different creators, including my man, Isaac Weisopt, who is my guest next week. So I do highly recommend getting a subscription because, you know, well, look, you want to support the show. You love the show. I love you for that. Anyway, nonetheless, get me, get yourself, get me a wedding gift. If you want to get me a wedding gift, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can subscribe to the show. You could leave a review, a five-star Apple ratings and review over on Apple Podcasts. You could also get yourself a bag of Fox & Sons coffee. Support our great sponsor, Stephen Fox, just re-upped with me for another run um, promoting his Fox & Sons brand, which he started not just due to his love of coffee and his desire to share fresh, amazingly sourced beans with the world, but also to teach his sons about entrepreneurship, which I think is just a fantastic combination. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. That's F-O-X, the letter N-S-O-N-S.com. Grab yourself a bag. Use discount code MCFs to MCS, Mark Claire Show, MCS, to get yourself 18% off your order. Not only that, if you already used your discount code, don't worry, because Steven's running a great deal right now on subscriptions. Now, as you can see here with my Den Blend Dark, I'm trying to get in front of the camera here. Look, I'm not a videographer for those watching the video. I'm just a podcaster who happens to turn his camera on. If you're running low, if you don't want to worry about when you order beans, get yourself a subscription because right now Steven is running a special $4 per month off subscriptions. So, and really... You got you to gotta get a subscription because I don't have to think about when this new bag is going to show up. I don't have to think about, am I running low? It's just going to come to my house in time. And it's fantastic. And, and they do clump, come like clockwork, uh, how Steven gets these bags out. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he runs such a smooth operation, but he does. So check out Fox and Sons, foxandsons.com. Use discount code MCS to get 18% off your order or get yourself a subscription today for $4 off a month. You really can't go wrong. That being said, it is time to get into my conversation with fellow Florida man, David Gornoski. With me today, he is a, uh, a podcaster and I suppose technically a former radio host. We'll talk a little bit about that. He hosts shows like Things Hidden and A Neighbor's Choice. I'm very pleased to welcome fellow Florida man, David Gornowski. David, welcome to my show. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure. We got to have lunch uh, a few weeks ago uh, just outside of Tampa here where we both reside. And uh, it was fun doing that. But now, for, now here we are, uh, you know, over just over the Internet doing it. Podcast podcast. It was which is funny because now it's I have so many podcast conversations that getting out of my comfort zone is actually when I go talk to someone in real life. And then not that it was uncomfortable. It was a, it was a blast talking to you. But this is like where it feels OK. Now I'm now I'm back in the normal place where we can have a regular conversation about politics, spirituality, uh, whatever it may be. It's, it's a funny thing. <laughs> yeah, you can, now that you're safely behind closed doors, you right. can tell me what you really think. Exactly. Now that you can't physically grab me when I say something, and you know, I'm a little <laughs> more at ease. Uh, but David, what I want to talk about first with you is just a little bit of your background uh, and how you first got into, well, it was, I believe podcasting at first, then radio, but now you've kind of shifted back and more to focus on podcasting. So take it from wherever it makes the most sense, sense to uh, start things off. Yeah, well, I um <clears throat> I did I did some radio production when I was in college, uh and then started a business. 
Um, and um, eventually I felt the call. I said that it feels like politics is my Nineveh, which is the carrot. That's the story of Jonah where God tells him to go and tell these horrible people uh, to stop doing what they're doing before the whole world is destroyed. Uh, and he doesn't want to do it because he thinks there's horrible people and they don't deserve any second chances. And that's how I felt about politics. My first stab at it, I started, ri- I started writing political commentary when I was 17 years old. Uh, and I was trying to do the whole, you know, let's do this conservative thing or whatever. And it just didn't. I was like, this is things not going to, the people don't care about liberty or whatever. And they don't care about constitutionalism at the time. I was trying to do that uh, message. and. They don't want it. I don't want to tell them anything, you know? And so I was trying to, I kept trying to start businesses and one thing or another kept leading me back to politics and culture. Like, oh gosh, here, I, I guess I'm good at doing this. I don't want to do this, but I guess I'm going to have to do this for, for some reason. And so I started a podcast um, and then that uh, turned into um, doing a radio program in Orlando and then we added Tampa Bay and then stayed at that. I had to do that through the whole pandemic, which was like the worst time in the world to do. It's also the best time in some ways, but to do a daily two hour live news oriented program in the midst of people, you can't, you know, you go to the grocery store and there's no food on the shelves and you got to come back and be Mr. Authoritative, smooth, calm radio man. There's a certain difference, there's a level of, there's a level of, of responsibility that you just, you know, socially accept when you're broadcasting in an actual location during cataclysmic events like hurricanes or pandemics that you don't have when you're just doing a podcast, right? Because if you're doing a podcast, you're talking to your choir. Sure. And so they're already pre-selected to be in your wavelength. But when you're on the public airwaves, it's probably mostly in our heads, but we socially perform a different kind of role of like, well, I'm going to tell you my opinion, but there's also this certain level of like confidence and positivity that I feel the need to bring to the table when people don't know whether they're going to live or die during a pandemic. And that was, that was a heavy burden I didn't expect to have to carry. That's an interesting perspective because, yeah, I mean, like there's definitely even just in my regular life, there's a certain way I will speak to my podcast audience that I I already kind of know at least what wavelength they're on to some extent that I would never certainly talk the same way if I was just having a conversation at the dinner table with my family. And I suppose that's even more of a burden, so to speak, when you're on the public airwaves, because really you could catch, uh, you know, you could catch grandma on the crossfire. You don't want to go just be, you know, sending doom and gloom everywhere, uh, knowing that anybody might happen upon this. You, you, want it's interesting that you say it that way because you already referred to it as sort of like a calling in the first place well that's even sort of a higher level responsibility during a time like that when you know it's possible you might be the only thing that brightens somebody's day when they yeah. stumble upon your program exactly exactly i or felt you can make it worse depending on, on how, what you bring to it and ironically a lot of talk radio is you know a lot of talk radio success stories do not include positivity you know uh the the bread and butter of traditional talk radio is bombast. And, uh, I'm sure I can be that if I want. Uh, but I always tried to be, I looked at it like, um, like a business in a sense of if everybody is selling a product, which creates a feeling of negativity in your heart, when you're experiencing it, when you're listening to it, uh, I want to stand out by creating a positive feeling 
you know, because that's a way, you know, the, it's like anything. If you watch a movie and it's a horror movie, at the end of the day, it's not really what you're watching. It's the feeling that you're creating in the audience that you're selling. It's that experience of fear, foreboding, and it's safe to experience it that you're selling versus if you're selling a comedy, it's laughter or whatever. It's a different, it's an emotional experience that you're giving someone that you're paying. I'm paying to get this feeling. And then I think of radio in the same way of like, okay, if everybody's being negative, uh, whether it's Alex Jones or Sean Hannity or whoever, even if I agree with them on this or that or this, it doesn't matter. Can I give a product that makes you feel positive overall when you experience it? That if I can, then I'm hopefully standing out in a sea of sameness. Because no matter who you turn on, whether it's NPR or whatever, if you feel like hopeless, despair, I need to get my uh, tribal uh, allegiance to protect me, that's all you get, then there's a lot of crowded competition in that. And so I tried to approach that medium that way. I don't know if I was successful or not. I had to take a break from it. Uh, uh, and it's, I consider my radio career on pause, but it was an ex interesting experience to do that and try to be positive when I was very many times feeling negative. And I said, you know what? I have a responsibility. I can't get on there. It's just the way I felt because I felt about the older people. I thought, you know, I was thinking of a grandma because I was on a talk radio station and I think to myself, well, the average person is not going to look like Mark Claire right now. The average person is going to be older. And I, and then my Mark Claire, people that look like Mark Claire are going to be listening to me online. And I want to tell you, I want to talk to them too, but let me see how I can talk to a crowd that gives Mark what he needs. And also the grandma, mm -hmm. what they need. And that, you kind of split the difference kind of in the way you come across, you know, <laughs> you know what right, I'm saying? Right, right. It's, it's a weird thing, you know? Yeah. I got to imagine it's, it's interesting too, too. Cause you know, I interact with a good percentage of my audience, but they're also my audience. And that's why I'm interacting with them. Whereas in the medium of radio, uh, I, it must've been such a very different experience to often get, take calls and have interactions with your audience that not, it's not necessarily your audience per se. They're just someone that happens to be listening at, at that moment that you interact with. So maybe you can speak towards that a little bit. What's it like talking to a lot of people who might not share the same perspective as you, but they're also, you know, they're not coming at it necessarily to c combat you in a, in a, you know, they're, they're looking to have a conversation a lot of the time, the few people that call in, of course you get bombastic people that just want to throw bombs too. Well, it's, it's always exciting to see who's going to come on because when you're summoning someone out of the ether and you don't know what they're like, and they're in a, in an actual community and you're like, what are they going to be like? Are they going to be weird? Are they going to represent my crowd as like, that's what my crowd sounds like? Or are right. they going to be like, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. So that's the hey, David, I'm a libertarian just like you. And what I'm going to like, well, hold on, hold, hold, calm down, calm down, sir, yeah. Mr. Jones. <laughs> yeah. Like a broad, you know, that's where you get the concept of a broadcast versus a podcast. The broadcast is you're casting out a broad net and you're going to catch all kinds of sea creatures in between the thing you're actually looking to get, you know, and that's kind of how that medium works. And the way you talk in a way that catches a broad net is going to be different than the way you talk one-on-one, -on -one, like a podcast type format feels, you know? So that's kind of the, the difference. I guess you could imagine it. It's like a performance that, like some, like the way of acting for a stage is different than the way you would act in a movie, right? The way right. you would do your lines and everything. Mm -hmm. So all the world's a stage, in other words, podcasting, radio, all of these are different forms of, of stages.
So why did you decide to pivot away from the the experiment, I guess you might say, uh, of doing broadcast and going back to now? I, and now I believe you're just focusing on producing everything as a podcast. So what's the difference for you? What, why did you decide to make that pivot? And and what, where is this all going? What, what, what are you planning to do with all this? Well, you know, I started off trying to, I, I felt, I tried to help initiate a, a, a unique way of taking current events with anthropology, with what I talk about, mimetic theory, Rene Girard, and try to apply it to current events. And when you take on the burden of a daily radio program, uh, you end up focusing more of your uh, attention on actually cultivating uh, uh, current events and assessing what the actual story is rather than getting into the bigger picture stuff you're trying to develop. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you're focused on uh, uh, trying to develop big ideas and at the same time doing two hours of radio based on current events, your attention and your, and your focus can get split. But now that I can take away the current events format and I don't have to react to jo- Joe Biden, I can just double down with you or other people like that and get into really nitty gritty stuff and big idea stuff. I feel like it helps me be able to hone my message that I originally started with instead of having to take the responsibility of doing a proper uh, current event analysis. You know what I mean? And so imagine if Jordan Peterson, as an analogy, Jordan Peterson is very passionate about uh, Carl Jung's psychology. Like I am anthropology, right? Mm -hmm. And so imagine if Jordan Peterson you know, when he was developing his work, he started to take on, you know, a two hour live call in show based on the news. It might have inhibited his ability to get the Carl Jung psychology fully fleshed out as it needed to be um, right. because he'd have to always be reacting to the daily news cycle. And so I, I felt like it was time to put that on a pause for a moment and go back to where I started to really get that right and complete a lot of work I wanted to do with that. Did you find that even with your approach to trying to keep things positive and stay in a positive way that having to do that daily show where you do just by the nature of it have to react to the news of the day, did that add to your own stress level, to, to your own ability to sort of process everything you're trying to do? Or is it more just simply a, a straight up time issue? It's time, but it was also, I mean, yeah, it's exhausting. It, you know, it takes more out of you. I think maybe I'm wrong. I well, yeah, I mean, it takes yeah, it takes more out of you to look at negative stuff and come out with a positive angle than it does to look at negative stuff and go with the flow and incite anger, fear, despair, and they're coming to get you. Like it's easy to do coming; they're coming to get you because it looks like they're coming to get you on a yeah. lot of levels, right? Yeah, but it's, it's really it's a lot harder <laughs> to get out there and aikido that energy over and over and over again, like. Well, this is really bad, but here's what we can do. And you, and you kind of like, all right, this is more exhausting on my right. energy level. And, you know, at some point I just felt like, you know, I need to just double down on, on the applications of what my message is. So even with my podcast, it's still, and it has been, even when I was doing the radio show, kind of like multiple programs. I do multiple programs. So like a content lineup. I have my seed oil survival, which is my series that I've developed uh, because of what we've done to push the seed oil conversation. And that's a whole conversation we could have. I've got things hidden, which is my anthropology, deep dive history and all that. And a neighbor's choice was my daily news format. And now anything that's political 
or current events oriented, I just stick that onto the Neighbors Choice label for the podcast feed. And then I also have another spinoff series called The Science, which is where I interview the COVID science doctors, like uh, we're doing Dr. Peter McCullough this week. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we just, I, I just don't like doing one thing. So I like to, I like to kind of have my category lineup and, and, you know, shift to different things. Like if I did COVID science stuff, I would be like, oh my gosh, I'm tired of this, but I don't want to let go of it because I think it's, it's an important storyline to keep following with the audience, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think I had a similar feeling to that uh, towards the end of my time at Lions of Liberty and part of why I pivoted to doing this show because I want to do some different things. And I think when I'm in a, a libertarian you know, sphere, then no matter what my message is, I always find myself reacting to libertarian things, whether it's libertarian things in the news, libertarian squabbles, debates. I always was the one that would be come to, to host the libertarian debates. And I like appreciated that. But at some point it just became like, this is all I'm doing. I'm just reacting to this thing and I'm not exploring all these other areas that I find interesting. And in fact, that I actually find more important. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the things I find the least important. So I, I can totally uh, relate to that feeling for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. It, and, and sometimes you got to play to the things that you started with, go back to the basics. And that might mean getting out of uh, certain things that you like at one point and then you lose interest with over time, you know? For sure. Yeah. That's like me with pro wrestling. You know, I, I was a big fan as a kid, got away from it a little bit, and now I'm all the way back in. But and my, my goal today was to work in a few uh, pro wrestling analogies. So we'll, I'm just going to plant that seed there and we'll, we'll, we'll see where things go. But. Well, that's an important thing. When you're talking about media personalities, I, I, I see it like the same thing as developing a character for that kind of performance art. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's what it is. I mean, as much just as I be yourself, just be yourself. Oh, come on. There is no self. That's the whole point. I mean, there's multiple layers of yourself, yourself, your relationship, Mark as relationship to your grandma is different than Mark as relationship to hundred percent. Anybody you have multiple selves, <laughs> how I talk to my wife, how I talk to our son, how I talk here on a podcast are completely different things. How you feel, how you emote, right? How your tone is, how your body language is. Do you use big gestures when you're talking to your grandma? Maybe if she's mm -hmm. uh, high energy, you know, maybe you do, but most likely you're smaller and you have a higher pitch. Hi, grandma. You don't say, hi, grandma. You say, hi, grandma. <laughs> Let me you tell you something, grandma. <laughs> We're going to have a great dinner tonight. Okay. Getting into the pro wrestling mode. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because too, because it's, it's none of them are a lie and they all are a performance as well because they all are me being true to me in some way. But there is the aspect of I'm going to cater my message differently. I mean, I'm not going to spit out anything that's just the way it's coming up in my mind because my God, that would be madness for everybody. It would make for a horrible podcast. It would make for me a horrible communicator with my family and my friends if I was just spitting it all out. So there's always going to be a filter and that filter is going to change depending on, you know, where that message is going or, or what it is at the time. So it's a, it, whether it's due to podcasting and, and, you know, having to, to filter that way or whether you're just filtering between family, friends, coworkers. I mean, we're all sort of altering our performance as we go. That's right. And you never, that's, that's the whole point of what we call mimetic desire. Is I know that, that was my transition, but that's how good I am. Rela relationships are not your, you, your desires are not from you. The desires are shaped between you and your, and the other. Mm -hmm. So your relationships are actually what constructs you, not you, you know, uh, being in the captaincy of, 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 of what you want and desire that you're really kind of mediated by others around you that shape your taste and the running narrative in your head that you call yourself. So the self is basically an amalgamation of the different 
uh, narratives and desires and passions that others have modeled for you throughout your life into what you have selectively tuned into wanting to make you. So it's like Power Rangers, you know, where they combine to make a little big animal or something. It's like, you know, you are a construct of what you intentionally bring into your life and unintentionally bring into your life by those around you. I mean, when newborns are born, they are shown, studies have shown and suggested that they're already mimicking the uh, tongue gesture of their parents like a few seconds after birth. So human beings are wired to be interdependent, interdividual on the other for their sense of who they are. more so than anything else in the animal kingdom, the human being is wired for desiring what others have beyond basic survival wants. Basic survival wants, you don't need to tell someone, you don't need to see somebody uh, run to uh, uh, cover when there's a hurricane to know there's an instinctual desire to run to shelter. Uh, that's an instinctual want. But beyond that, you have all these other things of desires that pull you this way or that way. You don't need someone to model for you that you need to eat to live. But beyond that, you can add mimetic layers. Like I am a vegan and this is my identity as I eat this. And then somebody says, well, I'm not that I'm reacting to that. I'm a carnivore. And so that's a layer of mimetic, right? I'm looking, I'm desiring on top of a want level. So the want level is, it's going to happen without you needing to look around for somebody else to model it. The only thing that you're going to model is how you interpret your desires for what you're going to eat, right? And then how you eat it. Do you eat your food with opening your mouth or do you close your mouth? Do you put your elbows on the table or were you taught don't do that? Uh, you know, do you uh, talk with your mouth uh, open while you're eating? Do you make loud noises while you chew your food or do you eat quietly? (laughs) Those are all things you picked up from models around you. Those are more row imitations. But the fundamental thing about identity, you're desiring, you know, you see a vegan or a vegetarian and you see that they exemplify a level of virtue or strength or beauty or insider success that you want for yourself. And so you adapt their diet tribe as a form of like attaining that, uh, status that you see them having. So that's the level of desire that comes on top of the want. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how much of that is, I suppose it is always a combination of there is certain, certain things that we are born with genetically, like needing, I guess, like you said, uh, air, food, what have you, but all the desires, all the passions, all the wants on top of that, those are very much learned and mimicked. I think even when we think we're rejecting the way we're, we're brought up or what have you. I mean, especially now that uh, I have a teenage son here, uh, there, there's not a day that goes by that I don't do or say something that I, I have to stop and go. Oh, I'm my dad now. And, and, but as at the time, as a kid, I think I'm rejecting my, oh, he doesn't, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And I probably thought that all the way up until the point that I actually found myself saying the same exact things and doing the same exact things that he would do when I was at that age. So probably because he was right (laughs) about a lot of things. And I, and I have the wisdom to, to recognize that now, probably wrong about some things too. But again, it's kind of to your point, we're amalgamating all of this together. It's not just spitting it right back out exactly as it came in. It's, it's sort of melding and merging with all the other influences and, and, and experiences that, that pass through us. 
Yeah, some of the role models that you're imitating, you're aware of, and some of them you're not aware of. Mm. You know, some of them you intentionally or consciously aware, yeah, I'm kind of like this person. I'm kind of like that person, or you at least desire to be like that. And then some of it you're picking up unconsciously, and it's usually the people you think you hate the most that you're actually maybe influenced by them, you know, in a way that you don't want to admit. You know, you know, envy and mimetic desire in a negative sense doesn't look like like a cartoonish version of black or white, like in a sense of like, I just want to be, you know, I just want to be that person. It's usually more nuanced than that. It's usually more like, well, I don't like their, I don't like the fact that they look, they dress messy. I don't like the fact that they're poor. I don't want to be like, like, I'm just saying, I'm making an example, or I don't like that they're shorter or I don't like that or that, but I do wish that I had that about what they have. You know what I mean? It's usually mm -hmm. kind of like these things I don't like, but I do wish I had that part. You see what I mean? That's usually how mimetic desire works in an envious way. And I find that if you take this step back to pause yourself sometimes and realize when you're criticizing somebody else or often maybe it's just in your mind, you're having some negative thought about someone and you're looking at all the things that you find that you dislike about them. They're late all the time. They're messy, whatever it may be. Uh, and those things might all be true. But the real reason you're sort of so critical and upset is because there is something that they have that you actually want. And that's why you're even bothering to care in the first place. You know, they have something about them that you're actually a little bit envious of so you have no sort of other defense other than to just tear down every every negative thing you might see about them which from my experience as well those are often negative things you really see in yourself too and that you you know you're sort of projecting it onto the other person who might display it in a more obvious way yeah i mean it's like think of like a celebrity they have power fame money but they are very envious of their friend from high school that they still keep in touch with who gets to have dinner whenever they want without being harassed, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, without yeah. being gossiped about whenever they have a problem in their personal life. Who can just go to a store and no one says anything about them and no right. one tries so to follow them. Do they, do they want everything about their being? Maybe not. Uh, maybe they would like their money, but they wish they could have what those people have, what that person has too, right? And so you always want what you don't have. You always want that thing that ends up becoming a feeling as if it feels as if they have everything and you have nothing. It feels that way. But then your rational mind can be like, well, no, I objectively am richer, more famous, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But there's a feeling of lack that you have that you see them modeling, uh, having, uh, satisfied, right? Like I'm lacking something fundamentally to my need for existence. And that, by the way, that's what you hear politically. Right. If you deny someone's political thing, you're denying their existence. You hear that language a lot. Or their mimetic. right to be heard or what have That's you. That's a mimetic tell when they say, you know, you're denying our existence. This is genocide. If you don't accept what we say is what we are. If you don't use the language we tell you, you are genociding us. Mm -hmm. That's mimetic. It's all mimetic language. That's a tell. Um, and, and in a sense that everything is mo mo most of this stuff is mimetic, but I'm just saying that's a negative mimetic thing because you're saying that, you know, you know, this is something in which you uh, feel like your entire being is lacking because of the other. Whenever you are in a state where you feel fundamentally like life is tricking or, or, or stacked against you, but someone over there seems to have it easier, you're in a state of mimetic idolatry. You're in a state of mimetic delusion in which you're basically deifying what your neighbor has. I always look at that. 
because everybody always believes they're the scapegoat of life. Everybody always believes that they're the one. Why me? Why is it me that it's happening to? This stuff always happens to me. I'm always getting the red lights. Nobody else gets the red lights. Like I have a feeling whenever I go to the drive-thru, I feel like I always get, you know how they have the the fork off now? Right. You You like the wrong one? Yeah. And I always, it's like clockwork. And I don't know. I think it's it's heaven's declaring a, a trick on me. But it's always, I'll, I always try to get the right one because it'll be like, it'll be like three in one line and then one car in the other. And I say, I know that the one car one should go faster. But for some reason, whenever I take that one car one, the three ones go faster because it had to be the one that has an order that is bigger than three entire families. And she can't decide and she's got three cards to pay with and it's just a disaster. Yeah, And you're like, how is it? I always pick it. Even when it's objectively a smaller line, it always takes longer. But you, but you internalize these things in life, the little ones, uh, the big things, right? Um, career. Man, you know, why does that person oh, yeah. get to have millions of dollars being a podcaster, but I don't, right? And so there's a feeling of, well, I'm... That, that it's stacked against me, you know, <laughs> you know, and so you, all of that is not, you know, that's covetousness, that's desiring what somebody else has, and that's always going to be something we're going to be tempted by. And 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 the question about whether we have a happy life is whether we learn to understand that those feelings and those desires don't come from you. They don't come from you, so they don't define you, right? They're they're illusions. And, and understanding that, that that's not your true desire, that it's just your human desires being pulled in a way that um, you're letting it get out of control. It's kind of a freeing feeling, you know, when you understand that all these things are an illusion. Like, give you an example. You want to be a billionaire, maybe. But I knew a billionaire who had Alzheimer's. And it doesn't matter if they were sitting on a golden toilet while you had a hard time paying rent. That billionaire in that moment would trade every nickel they had to have your mind. Yeah. Now, when you think about things like that, it's a freeing experience. It's a freeing experience. You think about your eyesight. You got eyesight every day you're driving. And there's some people born without having eyesight their entire life. And you enjoy it every day. And how much they would give to have the eyesight you have to see the things that you've seen while hiking, while swimming, while snorkeling, or whatever you enjoy, watching fireflies in a campfire. They would do anything in the world to have that. And yet we feel like our lacks and our, 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 our lack of having things is so all-encompassing that we can't stand it. And, and a blind person could make that choice to focus on that and everybody else. They could go through life being really angry at the fact that everyone else is just walking around, seeing everything. They get to see colors. They get to see what they're looking at, see what they're touching. Um, I, I don't know a lot of blind people. I have met some. It didn't seem to me like they had were taking that attitude at all. If anything, maybe they can appreciate a lot of other things in life more when they're born sort of deprived of something, but they certainly could take that choice. So I think so much of how we approach, uh, how we react to these desires and what have you, um, it's a choice. That doesn't make it any, it's like a neighbor's choice. You might say, uh, it doesn't make it an easy choice, but it, but it is a choice. And I think that that's 
part of the point of, of all of this stuff. And what, what you said earlier uh, about how the desires are, are not your own. Um, can you can you go into that a little bit more? Can you is there a, a do you mean that on, on sort of a spiritual level? Yeah, well, there's le- levels of this that I think are equally important to unpack. They're just layers. Like, I think there's a physics component to this. That's one of my contrarian takes that I'm pushing into the zeitgeist, that there's a physics level to uh, what Rene Girard identified as mimetic desire. Mimetic desire means you desire what your neighbor has. It's mimesis. It's, it's, it's an older word for imitation. Um, but it means beyond just rote imitation, but actually like desiring what you perceive your neighbor wanting to acquire, which is not necessarily a direct rote motion. It's something where you perceive my neighbor is, is going after something, uh, that it's not a direct action to emulate. Does that make sense? Like if you're, if your neighbor is pursuing, uh, 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 a certain, um, career path. There's not one action that you can monkey, you know, monkey like imitate, right? Mm-hmm. It's a whole way of being that you're kind of. Yeah. I can't uh, just go by the by. same car he drives and think that, right. I, that I'm going to yeah, be on the same. There's a whole amalgamation path. of things that come with that, and so it's beyond just rote imitation. Like there's rote imitation that we have. Like if I act in a different gesture, if I start talking like this, you might pick up that, or if you go really low and quiet, if you start whispering in the conversation, I might find myself just naturally matching that tonal pattern and going lower. Um, you know, we have a, a, a knee-jerk design to kind of mirror one another, and that's part of mimesis. But then you have this higher level order that is where it's more looking ahead and seeing what they're doing and trying to, you know, pattern your life in such a way that you feel like this will give you satisfaction. And that's the whole thing. We watch movies telling us that money, fame, power, and, and abundant sexual opportunities are a fool's errand. We watch movies for this all of our lives, all Hollywood, all dramas, all tragedies, and yet every human being is motivated by, I want more money, uh, or I want more power, or I want more um, uh, uh, social status, or I want more- It goes sexual. wrong in every story we have in our society, but uh, this should be fine for me. Let's go. Isn't that funny how that works? You know, everyone wants the very thing that everyone goes to the top box office movies and watches. People say, yeah, that's nothing. It's empty. It's a lie. And they still want it. I don't know because everybody else wants it. (laughs) And so that's what mimetic desire is about. I mean, you see it on a fundamental level. The classic example people who talk about mimetic theory have is like a child going in like a toddler and they're playing with the toy uh, and then. They don't really care about it. And then the other toddler sees the toddler playing with the toy and wants it because the other toddler's playing with it. Mm. And then when the second toddler pulls on the toy, suddenly the first toddler who didn't really care about it really wants it now. And mm. now you've got to fight, right? I mean, we think that's just a child thing because we are walking adults that basically are still children and we don't realize it and we don't want to believe it. Um, and so we, we act like we're so sophisticated, but we're actually basically the same thing. Just we hide our mimetic desires more, right? And so, um, you know, now uh, the whole game is all about, you know, victimocracy. Who's the biggest victim and who's the biggest ally of victims? Who's the biggest outcast? Who's the biggest aggrieved one? Who's the biggest one who's been held back by their identity? And so you lay, that's what intersectionality is all about. You're layering right. 
How the many layers. victimization uh, check marks yeah. can we get on you? Yeah, you're just layering them up as much as you can, and you count it like uh, indulgences or something of the opposite. You know, you're counting your grievances, <laughs> and that gets you access to holiness um, in relationship to your neighbor. And only uh, this is only possible with Christianity uh, as the foundation for this kind of sense making, even being a thing that would have social status attached to. You know, I, you know, you look at, remember the Brett Kavanaugh story where this girl was accusing him of things, you know, when he was in high college and I don't know, you know, whatever the details, whatever that shook out to be, but just think about like in 2000 years ago in the Roman empire, if a judge or something of that equivalent magistrate was accused about, about to accept their role as a, as the supreme judge or magistrate or something in the Roman empire and somebody from their college years is like, hey, but he he tried to, you know, forcefully do these things to me. Would that carry any currency whatsoever in Rome? Absolutely not, right? It wouldn't carry. They'd be any like, currency. so he's every other guy in our society. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> so we don't realize how alien our uh, normative expectations for things. We don't realize how alien it is to the vast swath of history. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the question becomes, well, what made us this way? You know, and, and so, you know, you get a lot of dumb theories for for because we don't want to admit why we're this way. Um, and, and so we come up with all these clever explanations that that misdirect our self-awareness to who we are and why we do what we do. Um, and so that's why we're still lost and confused as to why we do what we do in a kind of intentional ignorance, you know, <laughs> because um the whole game of like the Western society is like kind of like guilt, hot potato. We're all trying to, you know, make sure that the person that's stuck with the guilt is not us, you know, that, you know, it's not my fault. I've got this, or I voted for this person, or I supported the new thing that whatever the next thing or whatever that little, but, uh, so, but that's all about, okay, well, I, I don't get to have the guilt because it's all about denying the universal, potentiality for human evil that human beings all have had in history. Nobody wants to acknowledge that. I mean, that is the greatest heresy uh, you could utter in, in, uh, in the Western religion of our time today is, is to admit that all human beings have the proclivity to have in-group preference and to use that in a way that can be oppressive, hateful, evil, violent, diabolical different levels you know of, of, of ugliness can 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 come from that so it's like what we were discussing before when you're when you're looking at someone and you find yourself upset about all the all these things about them you know it's it's often because you embody that thing as well so i mean when there's people out there talking about the 17 different i know intersectional notches they have on their belt all their grievances they have uh and and pointing that out as a, as a virtue in a, in a sense uh I, I think in many many times they are the one displaying those grievances upon others they are the ones being you know you know using race or, or what have you to to victimize others to sort of turn it around all in the name of their own victimization and you never see uh them talk about their american privilege you know i mean it's all about well <laughs> What about people in countries like Yemen? You know, do, do the, does the voice of the Yemeni and their grievances with you voting for Biden or Hillary or Trump or whatever, but the people who are doing the usual, the victimocracy are going to be more left identifying, uh, although the right does it too. But, you know, the people, in the, the, the young man in Yemen, in, in Yemen, why is his voice 
or her voice not as valid as your grievance. Well, the, you I know, think that all all comes down to how many uh, genders the Yemeni uh, boy boy clings to, <laughs> and how many millions of dollars uh, the PR firms backing their story have to to get that story into Hollywood and get the the fonts right from the Brooklyn advertising agencies. You know, <laughs> the hipsters. You know, I mean, it's all selective outrage, and um, you know, all of this comes from our inheritance of the Christian story being mutated and butchered and contorted into a totalitarian um, uh, culture, right? And so the only way to, it's that, and only way to, uh, um, to, to beat the man is you got to beat, you know, what does it say? The there we go. Is, there we got to beat the man. You got to beat the man. To be right? the man, you got to beat the man. So, so, so this woke Woo. culture wants to be the Messiah of the world. And they want, they have to beat Jesus to get there. So, all right. So in this, in this, uh, in this circumstance, Jesus is essentially Ric Flair, the, the, the best of all time. Uh, the, the, the highest the level, goat, the scapegoat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the goat, the goat and the scapegoat. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. The goat, the goat, of course, in, re- in wrestling and many other sports, the goat is the greatest of all time. Uh, and I never really thought about the goat and the scapegoat in some way or in this way, specifically being the same actual person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what that is. And so, the um, you know, that's what they want. They're jealous. Uh, they're jealous of Jesus. They want to be Jesus, and we all want to be Jesus. Let's not say they, but you know what we do with that impulse uh, matters, right? And if we if we try to resist it, then we're actually becoming. It's ironic that you resist trying to supplant Jesus. You can actually become like Jesus. But if you if you're not aware of that. If you take your ethnicity and come up with an ethno narcissist uh, grievance cult, then mm-hmm. you're actually con- assuming your uh, your race is superior to the cross in terms of its like victim status and history, right? And mm-hmm. so that you're worshiping your racial grievance narrative and history, um, which is not going to succeed because all of these things that's ha- all these things that are happening right now are based on this inherent assumption that we're all kind of selectively playing within a Christian playbook, but yet it's rigged, right? And so the whole idea is like, right, for example, the whiteness studies, right? That whole, whole, the whole thing about critical race theory is basically, you know, uh, this idea that like what is called the white race or whatever that they've constructed, the whiteness, institutional whiteness, all these things is like suppressing and oppressing and trying to defeat and destroy any and all others. Uh, and so, and so people who have whiteness have a choice to uh, continually unconsciously participating in that exploitation. The story is, or they can, they can stop and they can, they can go against those things. And that's going against institutional whiteness, right? You would have to apologize for your whiteness, I guess. That's sort of confess your sin, so to speak. Um, and I, I don't think uh, I think I can pass this story along well enough. But my, my father recently left his synagogue uh, because they actually told him that he needed people there told him that he needed to uh, be more understanding of his own whiteness and and the privilege that his own whiteness grants him. So he needed an, an additional burden upon himself in order to, you know, essentially they didn't kick him out, but they they. Kind of made it clear like this is the way you have to view things to be here and he didn't hesitate to say okay well then i, I won't be here yeah just well, aside yeah I mean, what does that do though that you're actually the critical race theory is deifying so-called whiteness 
as this kind of like transcendent deity, you know? Sure. It, it kind of reminds me of how, you know, being involved in the sort of libertarian anarchist realm for a long time, uh, often you'll see people define themselves as anti-state and everything is about being against the state, against the state. Well, to me, that I started to see that as that's the biggest statist you can be. If exactly. you're deifying the state, if you're basing everything that your beliefs are as a reaction to the state, you're the one giving it that, that statehood. You're the biggest statist there is. Uh, so I think that's just you know, right along those lines. Uh, yeah, that's like that's like mere that's like reverse. And Rene Girard talks about this that you can be like the ones who say they're the biggest individualist are usually the ones most lost in mimetic desire, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not even you know they think they they pride themselves in being such romantic, unique individuals that they're totally blinded by their hubris about how much what they want is mediated by others. And so, like, if you go to a country you go to a, a rural school and everybody's dressed in a kind of country western attire and you come in with goth or whatever you're you're still looking to your neighbor and then reacting against it well, i'm not right. that like i'm mm -hmm. this so you're still looking to your neighbor to decide what you will do so you're still it's just reverse mimesis you're still owned by what your neighbor wants and you're acting accordingly so that's not you're not free from the desire matrix and you're exactly right. Like if you idolize something as a monster, you're still making it a God that owns and consumes you. Just like with wealth, you know, having lots of wealth and saying, well, I'm against that. I'm going to throw all wealth away uh, as a reaction to my neighbor who's wealthy. Then you're still looking to your neighbor for how you're going to make your choices. So you're still enslaved to that desire matrix. You know? Or an atheist or a Satanist. I mean, their whole thing is is sort of being anti-God, but that is, in a way, sort of giving the de deification to God in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, David, I want to dig a little bit further into the the sort of uh, the the Christianity side of this because obviously that is where you're coming from with the way you're, you're filtering uh, this conversation. And I think I, you know, I have I have a mix of people that I think are are fans of the show. A lot of people are already very religious or Orthodox Christian or some other kind of Christianity, but a lot of people are more like me, somebody that's just at the stage where they've been exploring these topics in a lot more serious of a way and taking them a lot more serious. Um, so maybe you could speak from from that angle a little bit to people that might not just assume the, the Jesus story, assume Christianity. Maybe you can dig into a little more how you sort of can can filter that story and fill and, and sort of use that, use your knowledge of memetic theory to, to actually affect your own life or their own lives. Like how can we actually apply uh, the whole Christian uh, anthropology. Anth whoops, I just really messed that word up. The whole Christian story. Let's put it that way, um, for, for simplicity's sake, um, to to better their own lives and to sort of to work their way through this sort of this this war of desires that is kind of going on, whether we whether we you know realize it or not. Well, there's so much meta to Christianity that it's hard to see it, right? Because like even the idea of choosing. A religion is a Christian thing. You know, like you didn't choose a religion before Christianity. If you were a part of a nation, you know, like Hinduism is the word that Westerners gave the religion of, of the people that they labeled in uh, of India or whatever, right? And so there was no concept like, oh, well, I am I am in this ethnicity or this nation, and then I am of this religious affiliation. <laughs> That's a Christian thing. Like this idea that like we stand in a vacuum and we select. Well, I, I'm considering, and not, I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, like, the whole framework that we approach the concept 
is thoroughly saturated by Christianity. So you can't escape. It's like that whole saying when you're two fish in a, in a, in a uh, fishbowl and one passes by and says, how's the water water? And the other one's like, what are you talking about? It's like, you know, if you either get it that you're in the fishbowl and then kind of start with that kind of matrix awareness of what's going on, or you just blissfully keep, you know, you know, showing your ignorance and your own religious devotions to these kind of like mythic delusions that, well, I stand neutrally away from Christianity. You know, it's like these atheists like Sam Harrison and stuff that they talk with all this moral certitude about, uh, you know, these things are evil and those things are evil, but they only judge it by the standard of Christianity that they've been inherited that they don't fully recognize. Um, and so uh, even the concept of the human person is something birthed within the Christian tradition in the sense of how we understand a human person today. Like when we look at the narrative of Peter, it says in the text, when, when Peter realizes he's betrayed Jesus, and it says that he weeps and like we don't realize the revolutionary narrative breakthrough happening there that a text in that time in history would consider the emotional turmoil of uh, an illiterate you know fisherman of no will of no real uh, aristocratic status like we just assume that we read that like we're reading the headlines of today like uh, whatever what is so cool about this it's a myth it's a fable we don't even understand <laughs> how much it's reading us, right? And so the Bible is more importantly, in my understanding, something that is an anthology, not just to help us see who God is and what God is about, but also to see what human nature is like and what the human species is like. And so if you want to know, like, why are you here on earth? And why do you desire what you desire? And, and why do you uh, find yourself feeling these feelings of unsatisfaction in life? Well, the Bible is going to read you, if you allow it, to read you more than you read it. And it's going to allow you to understand the patterns of behavior that you find yourself in that seem to never be able to, you figure out, I can't figure out how to break through those habits. The Bible allows you to kind of work through a self-awareness process to be able to stop those habits. Would you almost say it's kind of like a mirror in book form if you allow yeah. it to be? Is that as yeah. the kind of the ultimate goal? Because it, it kind of like it, a never ending story where you become part of the story. Right. I mean, it, it reminds me of the way Father Turbo Qualls uh, spoke about not the Bible necessarily, but about finding Jesus. And he really just said, like, you know, Jesus just wants to show you the 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 true version of yourself. And that sounds like the way you're talking about the Bible is that if you look at it the right way, uh, it can show you who you are. Mm -hmm. Like so much of what bothers all of our problems is what we call death anxiety. And death anxiety is different from fear of death. Fear of death, you're walking on a mountain and you slip. Oh, 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 you know, you're about to fall. Right. That's a natural feeling. No one should be ashamed of that. That's just natural fear of death. Death anxiety is something more existential. It's that subconscious feeling that you have a limited time on earth. Uh, and you got to get what you need and get yours before somebody else gets it, right? And it's that kind of eh, attitude that makes relationships sour, that makes businesses fail, petty dramas build What up. am I doing with my life, you know? Yeah, but you don't even feel that way. You don't even think that. You just feel that that whole thing that needs to cut off somebody in traffic, that needs to make more money off of a deal than you needed, that needs to get that little last dig in in an argument. That's all driven by a subconscious feeling of a finitude of life. Okay. Because if you were to be told that you're going to live forever 
in a blissful state of restoration of all your relationships being fully understood as you want to be understood and understanding them as they want to be understood and everything in its completion. If you were to truly live as if that's real, it would completely change your attitude about things. But it, we don't, even those who believe in a resurrection and all that, don't fully commit to trusting that that's real. We want to believe it's real, but then we look at all the negativity around us, the disappointments, the mimetic desires that feel unfulfilled, and we get lost in the noise and confusion and feel as if this can't be true, that something so good awaits us, that, that something behind this whole universe actually loves us is hard to believe. You look at wasps that inject their larvae into the backs of the abdomens of spiders that eat themselves out from within, and it's very easy to say, whatever creator created this sounds like a predator that made us in that image, and I need to stay away from that predatorial creator as much as possible. There's a real reason to feel that way by people existentially, and I think the Bible addresses that feeling. The Bible says the word Israel, right, is like this motif that means to wrestle with God. So, I mean, like, that's part of wrestling with the feeling that like, is there a loving creator behind this? And that's what's so radical and beautiful about Jesus coming into history is that he's basically saying like, I am the final word for the creator's like personality and everything. So like, even though lightning might strike your house or things happen, friends disobey or, or, or betray you, uh, you know, kids disobey you or whatever, like things happen, you feel alienated. But just understand that, like, that feeling of being abandoned, I felt that too. And I'm still telling you that, like, what I act like and the way I treat my neighbors and the way I treat my enemies is the true disposition of the creator of everything you know in reality. And if you truly trust that, it takes you to, if you practice trusting that through your actions, uh, it can it take you into a place where you can have that abundant life. And you don't have to feel, you know, saddled down by the weight of these false desires that disappoint us. Well, that's where the, the choice part comes in. Maybe that's the neighbor's choice in, in a sense is you, we have all these desires that we're dealing with. We have everything that, that's passing through us, everything pulling us in different directions. But as humans, we do get this awesome thing. We don't always apply it. We probably often don't. You know, when we're in the realm that we were discussing earlier, when we're just reacting to things, maybe we're not making, you know, as many uh, direct choices about our actions in those cases. We're just reacting to what's going on around us. But we do have the ability to stop and actually just make the choice to not pursue this thing to or to pursue this other thing that might be lower on a desirability scale scale in some way uh, on the surface, but actually be better for us in the in the long run or what have you. So um I'm curious, David, if you could, uh, well, one thing I wanted to kind of key in on there a little bit as you were discussing this, this kind of um, occurred to me and it, it plays off some things we talked about when we had lunch together too, is is all the kind of things that I see now um, when you're talking about, you know, people might look at the world and say, how could a loving creator you know, create these these wasps that, that shoot larvae into the people's backs or, uh, you know, the creatures that eat their young, things like this. And you just look at nature and it looks so brutal and you think, yeah, how could... How could they do this? How could a loving thing be behind this? But it just kind of, in my own life, I mean, I've only had the pleasure of be being in a father role for the last couple of years here, but um, there are certain things that we do and say and put into place that, uh, you know, the uh, the child might not necessarily think is loving. They might actually think it's terrible and, and they don't understand it and it gives them uh, anxiety. But um, But from this perspective, we can see, well, no, we actually know that we have to 
do these things because we have to put certain structures in place. So he has, he, he doesn't just, you know, fall off a cliff with, with this or that. Um, so just from being on that side of things, even if I don't get some things that are happening in the world uh, or things that might happen to me that I might be the victim of, um, uh, there is that sort of what, and I'm not, I'm not there in any way, shape or form, but I can see how it, once you can get there or once you can live in that a little bit more um, to realize like, yeah, you might not understand why these things are all happening, but there is love behind all of it. And, um, you know, I think that is kind of the way that 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 is that's the way of, of following the the Christian path, I suppose, is to try to live in that as much as possible. And I, I'm saying this from my my very uh, my very untrained thoughts on it, really just from talking to people like you and others. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's what it's about choice. That's what the Good Samaritan story is about. You know, you look at that story um, and, you know, it's interesting. Jesus takes that story and. He, um, you know, he's asked in the first question, like, how do I get to heaven basically? You know, and he tells this story, like, how do I, how do I, how do I experience the kingdom of heaven? And then he tells this story about go and be like the, this person, right? At the end of the day, go and do what this person does. And the hero of the story is the Samaritan who is someone of a different religion than him. Okay. It's so important. I think to, to understand this because. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, fixation on getting proper mental assent in Christianity and all of its different flavors. But Jesus takes intentionally someone who's got it wrong intellectually and culturally and religiously, but still got it right in, her, in their heart, right? And he, and he juxtaposes that person uh, to people who've got the right religion, but don't have the right heart in the way that they choose to love their neighbor, even at the risk of losing their life. The Samaritan does that. He says, it's more important for me to make that radical choice to, to let go of my death anxiety, the fact that I might get killed if I stop and help this person who's injured on the road uh, in this dangerous area, because it could be a setup, as it often was the case. I mean, I've driven down that area on the road to Jericho uh, in, in that area. I mean, and you can see these big cavernous mountains and valleyways, and you can see it looks pretty rough, like some Wild West stuff could happen out there. And that was an area, you know, where these folks could be attacked by bandits in a setup. <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, this person who is of a rival enemy tribe to the people that Jesus belongs to and the people that he's telling the story to. And he uses him intentionally as the protagonist to be like him, not like the people who have the correct religion but have no desire to love their neighbor as themselves, even loving their enemy as themselves. Now, what we have today, the whole problem with conservative and liberal dialectic discourse is that they've got parts of Christianity that they get excited about, but they don't know how to harmonize it. And so all they do is just beat up on each other endlessly about their kind of mutated heretical form of Christianity in contrast to the other. And everybody always has a justification as to why they can short change their uh uh, uh, treatment of their neighbor because of their ugliness and the horrible behaviors and views of their neighbor. But ultimately, Christianity is about having the courage to follow God and love someone, even if they're of a different tribe. Can you help the transgender person who needs your help in the moment? You don't have to affirm their ideology, uh, but that's not even a thing you think about. If you're a Christian, you just go and help them and stand in solidarity with your neighbor. Um, 
And so there's a lot of work to be done, okay? We have folks right now, people who are turning into all these violent ideologies because their grandmas have diabetes, their dad has cancer, and their mother has Alzheimer's. And we don't think of things like that. We don't think things holistically like that. We think of things the way the media puts a shiny toy and says, we're talking about this today. It's like, okay, uh, what's my position? Uh, this one or this one? Okay, I'll pick this one. Okay. Oh, this is cool. It's a cool, cool, We're cool. following the storylines that the booker is pushing forward exactly. for us. You know? You know, it's exactly. And it's like, no, that's not how you do it. If you want to change the world, if you want to have your neighborhood cleaned up, it starts with you. That's an old trope, but it's true. And it starts with a specific disposition towards our neighbor, which is to love our neighbor in to understand that the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust, because the creator of the universe, we have to trust that Jesus is the final word about his character. And therefore we can act accordingly in a way that Jesus acts and treats his neighbors and his friends and his followers, which means you should be washing the feet of your fans and your followers. It means you should be turning the, other cheek when you get disrespected by someone because to uh, acknowledge the attack as disrespect is to give it power, right? It's almost like you understand it's not the same, but it's a little bit like Hulk Hogan. You like wrestling analogies. There we go. When Jesus is said turning the other cheek, it's kind of like Hulk Hogan hulking up when he, the punches don't <laughs> affect him anymore. Like people have right. this stupid mindset about Jesus, like. <laughs> He's like this weak and, oh, just keep letting him beat you. Uh, he was That's up. not at all. He's hulking up. He's saying, this doesn't affect me. This doesn't affect me. Come on, hit me again. Come yeah, on. This is not what a you problem. You're just fueling me. That's a, that's a, now, that's an analogy right there, David. That, that's, that's the whole point of this episode is to get something like that, and we got it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, you look at the tunic story. That's like Andy Kaufman. There's another wrestling character. Andy Kaufman style performance art. When he says, when your uh, crooked uh, corporatist landlord comes for your outer garment, give him your inner garment too. When he comes for your, your leather jacket, take off all your clothes and give it to him too, because you don't need it. And what he's doing, he's, that's a performance art. He's telling, he's doing physical comedy there, like Chris Farley. Or so he's giving you physical, if to his crowd, his crowd would be laughing because he was saying like, it's, I mean, think of it like in a Jewish humor sense or something. Maybe if that helps as an analogy, like he's giving you that kind of like, what does it matter to you? Give them, give them your whole outfit because what you're doing is you're shaming them because in that culture to look upon someone else's nakedness shamed you. And so by when they're being petty, and coming for something that they shouldn't, if they had a good spirit about things, you're reversing that pettiness by saying, I'm not clinging so hard to this. Take it and take everything I got. And it's a kind of humor, right? It's a kind of like the whole crowd would have been like stand-up comedy right there. A lot of what Jesus is doing is going to have that tone to it. There's a lot of double entendres in the Gospels, and there's a lot of richness. I mean, the literature there is just so many different layers in terms of like, like sophistication, in terms of self-awareness. And again, it's alien to the time in which it was written that there's these different layers that you can take. Um, and, and I mean, you can go so many different ways of understanding uh, some of the richness of these texts. But I mean, even the, even the concept of an unreliable narrator is a kind of art that a good author knows how to use. And you see that in some of the biblical anthology where the text in, older, in Old Testament is trying to get you to wrestle with what does God actually want you to do? What is the good life? 
what is the best way of treating your neighbor? And it might look like you're supposed to do one way, but then the prophet says, no, actually it's this way. And you've got to make that choice yourself. But we don't like that. We like a flat. See, Christianity is not a, a, a religion of the book. And we want to make it another religion of the book. I got this book religion or that book religion, which one you want, you know? And it's like, that's not what it's about. It's bigger than that. The book always points to a bigger word than itself, right? The text always invites a kind of wrestling with it that allows you to move beyond just tell me what to do, tell me the formula, and that's what I do. You know, that's not what, that's why like those stories like Peter, get out of the boat and walk on water too, okay? That's not a people of the book kind of story. A people of the book kind of story says, tell me who the big guy is. Who is it? Is it Hercules? Who's it going to be? Oh, you say it's Jesus. Okay, who, that's who I say my prayers to tonight. And tell me, how much does he need from me to be a part of his team? Okay, 10%. Okay, I'm writing my check for 10%. Okay, there you go. I got the big guy taken care of. I say my prayers to him. That's what I'm doing. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, okay, I'm walking on water. Holy crap, what the heck is that? And it's like, no, now you do it too. What? I just Can I just stay in the boat and say how, how awesome you are, that you're really cool, you're really strong? And that's amazing that you're on water and I'm just going to stay in the boat and I'm going to go like this. There's another wrestling analogy you want. You know, I'm going to just do this. And it's like, no, that's not Jesus. Jesus is like, no, now you be that. Okay. So when the storms are raging in your life. It's the difference between watching, watching Hulk Hogan Hulk up and you hulking up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like a, a kind of becoming, right? You know, Maya Angelou said, when someone asks, like someone says they're a Christian, she'll say like already, because it's a process of becoming, right? And so you don't say I'm a Christian in the sense of like, a, it's a static thing. It's a process of becoming the, the person who has given us a bridge between that, which is infinite unfathomable and that which is finite that we can comprehend. And he gives us that bridge so that we can uh, have a pathway to follow, not a book or a recipe uh, that doesn't really get us anywhere, but actually more violence. Well, it's interesting you put you, the way you put it about the Bible and how it's really meant to, meant to make you struggle with these ideas and, and concepts. Cause I think a long time I, I had a lot of sort of ideas about Bible stories that were kind of like, well, why would, why would the, the God do this? Why would they put this in the old Testament and then have that sort of visceral reaction to it? Well, that's stupid. Um, but when you frame it in a different way of that, you're actually supposed to have that reaction in a sense, you're supposed to wonder and think about and wrestle and grapple with these ideas. To me, it, it, when you frame it that way, it's almost like this isn't meant to even give you the answers. This is meant to teach you how to struggle with the answers. Yeah. I mean, look at the funny story of Jacob wrestling with somebody in the dark. You know, there's a story that's like an iconic story of the Old Testament where Jacob is like this iconic patriarch figure in the line of the story of the king of these, you know, of the story of Jesus. But you get Jacob like fighting with some random dude in the dark. And it's supposed to be like, is it an angel? Is it God? Is it Jesus? And he's like, and he's just sitting at a campfire and all of a sudden he's just like hitting somebody and punching and kicking. It's almost like Looney Tunes in that sense where Bugs Bunny fights with another person. It turns into a cloud and then Bugs Bunny stands out of the crowd cloud. And he's like, what the heck is still going on? I'm not even there. You know, like what's happening over there. It's almost like, who is he fighting in the dark? 
and somehow it's God. And somehow by like putting up a fight and not being a little, <laughs> a little punk, <laughs> not being a little simp, like every other religion, uh, the little pagan religion, the little simps, you know, because he's not like that. God blesses him. He does twist his ankle or puts his hip out of socket or something. He hurts his hip, but then he names him Israel, right? Which means wrestling with God in the dark. Hmm. So you are Israel when you wrestle with God in the dark. You say, God, how can I believe in you when you're doing this to our people? Why, God? Because that's how Jesus thinks. It's when you're in the ring cutting the promo on God and telling you, you're coming out of the ring right now. You get in here with me. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it's not to be, you know, like, you know, some kind of cheap way to, I'm boss. It's just like, he wants you to have that heart of wrestling with life and not being like, I'm on the right team and therefore I'm good to go. And I give you the fire to cut the best promo of your life in that ring. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so, you know, because he says you would do greater things than he, have you ever heard of a wrestling character saying that saying, uh, I'm the greatest, but you fans, you would do greater things than I, you know, it's this idea of like empowering the, 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 the person to fully achieve and go beyond. Right. And it, I think in the wrestling example, it's kind of a, a patronizing maybe, but Jesus wasn't patronizing. He was literally telling you like, okay, my movement, you people are going to do greater things than I did. Okay. Uh, so get to work and go, right. Go, 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 go do that. And, uh, that, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, with this stupid stuff that we see in politics. Okay. I have, you know, cause it's been fun to donk on libertarians. I've never considered myself a libertarian. It's very cool to everybody wants to be not a libertarian now, right now. But all I'm saying is like the conservatives, that whole little Caesars movement, I call it little Caesars, the people that want to have a little Caesar, like these people are just as, 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 as pie in the sky nerds, simps for their stupid little stuff as the thing that they were reacting to with the libertarians. And so Little Caesars isn't going to cut it. A little $5 hot box ain't going to cut it. Okay. We need you know, the real true master of history. We got to stop being arrogant and coming up with, because you get a lot of this, man. You get a lot of these little trad people who say they're Christians, but they still want some kind of authoritarian Caesar right wing guy to fix everything. Okay. Well, guess what? Faith means trust. And if 2,000 years after Jesus defeated the system of Caesar, you're still begging for a Caesar, news for you, you ain't trusting Jesus, buddy. So you can call yourself a trad cat, cat, trad orth, whatever you want to call me. I don't care what you want to call. You want to be a trad Lutheran, trad Episcopal, trad, you, whatever your little gimmick, little super saiyan mode you've got. You're not trusting Jesus if you're still begging for a Caesar 2,000 years after Jesus said it is finished. What is finished? The defeat of the powers. You know, you look at, you look at, you go into Acts, the first sermon Peter gives. He says, Why do the nations rage in vain? The powers of the world, the kings of the earth were arrayed against. This is totally wrestling language. They were arrayed against yeah. heavy metal, whatever. <laughs> they were all, all the kings came up against Jesus on the cross and he defeated them. Paul says, If the powers had known what they were doing when they killed Jesus, they wouldn't have done it because it sowed their destruction and defeat in history. Now, why is it 2,000 years later, these little tough guys on Twitter are still begging for a Caesar to come save them from some crooked oligarchs that run our system? Jesus had crooked oligarchs? You think think Jesus didn't have to deal with Jeffrey Epstein's? You know, how many Jeffrey Epstein's were running the political system of his time? 
Yeah, like your On average Roman side. soldier was a, was probably just another Jeffrey Epstein, you know? Exactly. You know, we, oh my goodness, we got it so bad. It is bad, but Jesus dealt with the same thing, and he didn't play some, oh, guys, we're going to get a right-wing movement. We're going to get our authoritarianism. Go ahead. And, and to this day, Christians always try to put, well, he came in the land, he came in the form of a suffering servant, but when he comes back, he's going to be like uh, Hulk Hogan with a leg drop from the top rope or something. That's not what Jesus is about. In the book of Revelation, the Bible starts with this satire of what people still think Jesus is going to be like because they sh- he shows up as this symbol of a lion, like a roaring lion, a roar. And then it switches to a little bitty lamb. It's a satire, but these people, it's lost on them. They're still looking for little Caesars. They still want their little Caesar. The crowd, when they were given the choice between uh, uh, you know, uh, Barabbas, the guy who was supposed to, you know, who do you want to let go, Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas in the earliest text is named Jesus Barabbas. That they took that out because they thought it was too, uh, like, uh, it was too confusing, or yeah, too edgy, or maybe a little bit too like subversive or something. But the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels say that it was two Jesuses: Jesus, the one that we know, and then Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas is traditionally understood in Sunday school. Christal, you know, Christianity to be like a, a Jack the Ripper, right? Like just like a serial killer. It's like, ah, you know, like even that movie, mm. uh, Mel Gibson, Passion of the Christ, which had some good, a lot of good stuff in it. But they showed Barabbas and he's like, this guy is like sticking his thing, you know, he's just looking around like this little gremlin guy. They got out of the, uh, <laughs> some kind of um, uh, uh, demented uh, serial killer movie. But he wasn't that way. He was a he, he was an actual like a an insurrectionist, right? So so the choice was: Do you want William Wallace, or do you want the guy? Uh, an example of that in our pop culture, like, do you want William Wallace, or do you want like a, a Mister Rogers? You know, and the crowd's like, "Kill Mister Rogers, save <laughs> save William Wallace. We'll take William Wallace." And then we look at that text, and we're like, "How stupid was that crowd? They sold him out." As we scream. For a William Wallace, for little and, Caesars, as you would call them. yeah, and we laugh at you know anybody who says love your enemy, you know. Oh, well, that's not what we do. I've had I've had literal Christians tell me that. Oh, David, don't be talking about imitating Jesus when it comes to politics. I'm like, what are you talking about? Everything Jesus did was about politics. You see, the problem with libertarianism. Yeah, he said, love not, my neighbor, except when we get to politics, and then exactly. And the problem with libertarianism. You know what it is? It's that it's not radical enough, man. You know, that's the thing. We need to double down on nonviolence, you know, into this whole idea. And maybe it's this problem that people have. You know, they feel like, well, if I'm going to be nonviolent, that means I have to be a pushover. No, you don't. Do I look like I'm a pushover right now the way I'm talking? Does it look like if I'm presenting this message to the wokesters that I'm trying to, hey, I just want you to be my friend? No, I'm telling You're you what I truly You're in wrestling promo believe. mode, man. Yeah, I, exactly. wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. So you don't have to be like this stupid little tepid thing to speak mm-hmm. a message of peace. Right. You speak it from the heart, it's going to come out strong if you've got it in your heart to love and you really are passionate about it. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with charisma. But the point is, where are we directing that energy towards? Are we directing it to another stupid false messiah? Okay. Because that's just a waste of time. Our kids deserve better than that. One day, we're going to close our eyes for the last time. And that's it. And the only thing that we will be remembered on is the stories that people tell about us after we're gone. And the things that we set for them in motion with the time that we had on earth to give them an opportunity to go and make things better and go further. And if you squander that opportunity by trying to find another little Messiah, another little stupid gimmick, 
to make you feel right, to make you feel cool, to make you feel wealthy or powerful, then you've wasted your opportunity and you've sown destruction for your kids, which is the worst thing you could possibly do. Well, David, I think that is a, a hell of a promo for, uh, for us to close out uh, the main show on. I know you're going to stick around, hop into the smoke-filled room with me. So uh, before I let you go, why don't you just wrap up everywhere that people can find um, everything that you're doing. So all, all your various podcasts, I find them all on the David Gornoski feed. That's the easiest, simplest way for me. Uh, but feel free to lay everything out there. Well, our website's neighborschoice.com, Ron Rumble, and uh, those types of platforms. But like you said, the best way, just subscribe to our podcast feed. It's my name, uh, David Gronoski, at whatever um, uh, podcast platform you prefer. So. It really is that simple. You just type yeah. in that name and you get the feed. Boom. My, my listeners are smart. They can figure it out. David, thank you thank so you. much. Really appreciate thank your you. time. Thanks for coming on my show. Appreciate it. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great David Gornoski. You know I did. Not only was it a great conversation. But look, how many wrestling analogies did this guy fit in here? I mean, if you know me, you know that that's how you get me going by comparing anything you're talking about uh, to pro wrestling, because there's nothing I understand more than pro wrestling at the end of the day. Not politics, not religion, not spirituality. Pro wrestling is really what I understand. Uh, And we talked even more pro wrestling for... And look, I don't want you to be turned off if if you're not a pro wrestling fan, because you're going to get a lot out of the smoke-filled room with David Gronoski either way. Uh, But there was a lot of wrestling analogies in there, too. Talking about Sting, talking about the NWO. If you're a fan of wrestling from the 90s, you're really, really, really going to love the smoke-filled room. But you're going to love it no matter what let's be honest here so subscribe to the mark claire show on patreon patreon.com slash mark claire show subscribe star you can go get yourself a uh you can get yourself a one-week free trial on subscribe star or head over to rockfin where you get access to not just my show uh but a ton of other creators including next week's guest isaac weisopt so i'm very excited about that the illuminati watcher himself is coming in to the mark claire show and of course if you subscribe to the show you've already heard the extended version of that interview so really, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing sitting here for as little as eight bucks a month? You can support this show, support your favorite podcaster, and get access early and often and extended versions of every single interview, as well as bonus shows like Mark's Monthly Musings, where I give you my insider perspective on the goings-on of the show and of my own life. So there's, there's a lot to dig into there. Uh, friends, it's been a fun ride as always. Until next week, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening. And good night.